Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Hey, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here this morning. I want to say hi to all of you watching and listening online. And let's just take a moment. Let's give a huge shout out and applause to all the volunteers in the north right now. We're going to be watching us. So we're so glad for you this morning. I want to welcome all of you in C4 North Durham. Very excited as you're serving there today. Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, as Pastor Chris said here, and the staff will be saying up there, would you turn to First Peter, please, uh, in your Bible? We're going to be still in the first uh, chapter. And it's interesting, there's one sort of idea that Peter, when he was writing this, wanted to get across in the second sort of part of chapter one, and he was dealing with issues of distraction. We live in a culture of distraction, wouldn't you agree? We continually are looking here and there. We're bombarded by advertising, and now with social media, everything has changed. Ever been in a conversation and someone starts texting while you're in the middle of a sentence? Anyone? How do you feel about that? Really encouraged and loved, right? I was watching something this week. One university is considering considering now building texting lanes. Have you heard about this? This is true, that they're going to have sort of a left and right in the middle is going to be a texting lane that if you want to text, you have to walk in the texting lane so you don't fall over into other people. Uh, The grand accommodation, of course, is that. Now, we also know how dangerous being distracted can be. Uh, I was reading the stats last night that texting while driving is six times more dangerous than being a drunk driver. Did you know that? Like this unbelievable danger in distraction. Sometimes it's funny. Sometimes you're believing a university can build a texting lane, but it can lead to death. And Peter wants to talk very clearly to his original audience, and then the Spirit of God today wants to speak to us about distraction. He wants to speak to us about spiritually texting and ending up in areas we are not allowed to go or never thought we would arrive into. Now remember what what 1 Peter is all about. Peter is writing near the end of his life, and he's addressing a group of Christians that are suffering, and here's what he's addressing. How does a Christian... Living everyday life, let alone a Christian who is suffering, let alone a Christian who's being persecuted, keep life filled with living hope. How does hope stay bright and alive and shining? How do you not get distracted and end up in places you're not allowed to go? Now, if you were with us last week, Peter actually begins his letter of living hope with one of the strongest, most profound mini-sermons in the whole New Testament, where he systematically walks through the love of God for everyday Christians. And remember what he said, you are elected and you're chosen, and you're foreknown, and you're sanctified, and you're covered, and you're forgiven, and you're mercy-drenched, and you've been newly born, and your resurrection is guaranteed. Your faith is secure. We found out last week that it says in the scriptures that God himself acts like your personal bodyguard, and no one can steal your faith at all. This is how heaven sees you. It even said last week in 1 Peter 1 that God redeems the suffering and brokenness of this world, and he uses the garbage of this world to make us more like Jesus. And then he uttered something that is just shocking as a Jew writing to a community of mixed people, Jew and non-Jew, when he said, you 
are more blessed than the prophets because they predicted Jesus, but you actually have encountered Jesus. He says you're more blessed than Abraham. Can you believe that? You're more blessed than Moses who walked into a thick darkness and encountered the living God and got the Ten Commandments. More blessed than Jeremiah or Isaiah or Samuel. More blessed than David that wrote half the Psalms. Why? Because the Old Testament was preparing the world for Jesus, but we as Christians have met the living God face to face through Jesus Christ. Isn't that unbelievable? You can clap about that this morning. It's just a beautiful description of who we are. And then he ended by saying what? Even angels look in wonder at us because they cannot believe that God keeps saving broken people like us. So this is the living hope that each one of us has. And this living hope is the foundation, is the eternal spring that gives us dignity and secures our destiny and gives us biblical spirit-filled determination to keep going in life, during suffering, and even in persecution. So Peter says this, Therefore, since all that is true, Since now you know in explicit detail the love of God, this now is what you are called to do, we are called to do as a Christian. Verse 13, therefore, therefore, prepare your mind for action. Be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Therefore, since I have told you all of these things and you know in your heart they're true, therefore, you, since, have, since you have a living hope, you now prepare your minds for action. Now, in the original language, Peter is using an analogy we won't catch in English. Men during his time and still today in the Middle East wear long outer robes. And what this reads, if you have the King James, it says, gird the loins of your mind for action, whatever that means. So here's what it's saying. Pull up, he's using the analogy, pull up the long robe that you wear and pull it up around here so you can run, don't get distracted, and you will not fall down in your spiritual walk. He says, you get ready for action because God has not saved you to sit. God has saved you to run. And he says, how do you do this? Well, here's the first thing. You must be self-controlled. The image used here is being drunk or high and have no bodily control at all. Christian, he says, God does not want you to be distracted, blurred, high, drunk from sin, drunk from sins against us or even the good things of life. Why? God wants you to have a holy clarity, a good godly judgment. See, he knows something we all know instinctually. The cares of our life, Your job, your mortgage, your children, your friends, your dreams, the pressures of persecution, the temptations of the devil or sin itself, your own heart, even the good things, your home, your car, your cottage, RSPs, all of those things, evil things, neutral things, good things, they can all lead a Christian to distraction. They can disable you. They can lead you even to spiritual addiction and you can lose spiritual alertness. Just like when someone gets drunk, reality gets changed, their loss of control, and you end up in situations you never thought you would be close to, Peter says, I want you to put your phone down and stop being distracted while you're trying to do this Christian walk and life. You're going to miss what is really important, what lasts, what has to be your obsession and focus. He says, you set 
your hope fully as a Christian on the grace to be given when Jesus Christ is revealed. He says, you place your hope completely. Your hope must be found in the work of God, notice this, in the future, not in the transitory or corrupt or passing away life in the now. Jesus is coming back. His second coming is real. The inheritance, the salvation, the hope, the living hope we as Christians have wanted for 2,000 years, what has been longed for must be, here's a strong word, it must be your obsession. It must be your focus. It must be your everything. Now think about the original audience. People who are suffering and actually are persecuted are being told that this is not the end ballgame. But even take your own life. Let's all do this at this moment. We all experience highs and lows, social, economic, physical. We deal with sin. We all deal with the demonic in this room. All of you in the north, the same. Losing jobs, war, sickness. Family breakdowns, lost dreams, unmet expectations. Some have been persecuted for their faith. All people in some form go through midlife crisis and generational questioning. You can fill in the blank in your own walk. All of this, Peter says, happens, and all of this, if you are not careful, can make you spiritually drunk. So Peter says these words. You look up, and you look forward. Now, this is not what Peter is saying. Because some of us have grown up in churches that misuse this passage. This is not saying hate this world. This is not saying you cannot enjoy this world. If you're married, it's not saying you can't have a great time with your spouse or kids or a great sex life. This isn't saying you can't enjoy art or culture or food. This is not saying that you walk through this life and you just say this world is not my home and everything's going to burn here anyway, so who cares? No. What Peter is saying is something more profound and nuanced. He is saying that every single, everyday Christians are called to see today and evaluate today and change our behavior in today because the light of the future which is coming is permanent and stable and it lasts. So he says these words, right? He says, look, now you know the love of God and now you've experienced the love of God. I want you to gird up the loins of your mind. I want you to get ready for action. I want you to run and not be distracted or get spiritually drunk or fall down. And he says, I want you to be self-controlled. And then he describes it, verse 14, as obedient children. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Church, listen to this. This is what we started to hear last week at the beginning of chapter 1. The result of meeting God salvation, our right standing with God, the love of Jesus. What did we read in 1 Peter 1.1? To God's elect, to the exiles in this world, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to be what? Obedient to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. Why did God, the most holy trinity, one God, do all this for you? So we could what? Obey. The full description of God himself, his work, his salvation, the whole story of how we became Christians will always result in one glorious thing, a holy, marked life. A life marked by joyful, hope-filled obedience. See, that is why walking in holiness is so important. It's the living sign that you're saved. 
See, now you're a child of God, Peter says. And since you know the love of God and you know the extent of what God has done for you, be not just a child, be an obedient child. The evidence, the sure sign that you're a genuine believer is that your life is marked by growing obedience over a lifetime. And he says, you want to know what obedience looks like? Do not go back. Do not go back to the life you lived when you did not know the love of Jesus. Before the call of the Father, before the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that is the life you are called to abandon at conversion. So do not let your life and do not let your character be molded by the desires of your ignorant days. You forsake and you run and you abandon and you renounce and you leave and you disown and you desert anything that goes against God's holy word. Some of you are saying, well, John, I grew up in the church. I think I got saved at three or maybe in the womb. I'm not sure. So does it apply to me? Yes. We all, whether we remember our ignorant days or not, we are called to live a holy, countercultural way because the love of God has so changed us that we want to be molded by the one that loves us and not molded by a world that is passing away and will not last at all. Abandon all that contradicts the scriptures of God. Paul put it this way, Romans 12, 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. Be transformed. Be transfigured. See, this is the idea of metamorphosis. This is what both Peter and Paul are calling their churches to. It's a promise that over a lifetime we will look more like Jesus. We see it in nature. Tadpole to, caterp- tadpole to frog, caterpillar to butterfly. The, pre- the idea presumes over a lifetime that it is a, a process in which holiness takes place and gets rooted in us. Well, how does that happen? Well, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces a life in us that is unexpected. It is also found when we love the scriptures, we read the scriptures, but let me say this, we live under the authority of scripture. We do not read scripture like this, scripture has authority over us. Is that true? The Spirit of God makes us like Christ. The Word of God is our standard for faith, life, and practice, and we sit underneath it, and we do Christian community because without community intentionally speaking in, holiness will not be found. If you do not have a close walk with the Holy Spirit, if you do not love and eat and sit under the Word of God, and you reject Christian community and act like a rock star or a cowboy, your holiness will be completely stalled even though you're saved. But Peter comes along and says, no, no. You're not called to this. And then in verse 15, he writes one of the scariest, most beautiful verses in the whole New Testament. So just as God, who called you, is holy, so be holy in all you do, for as it is written in the Old Testament, be holy because I am holy. He's quoting Leviticus 11 and Leviticus 19. Since you've been called and elected and foreknown, and since you get to go right into God's presence now without judgment because Jesus is your high priest and the Spirit of God fills you, you now must imitate, we now must imitate the one that we have met. Peter says, look, you believe the kingdom's come, right? You believe that the reign and rule of God is found now on earth, not just in heaven, right? 
You accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, right? You want to follow after godly things. Well, then this is the place where we become that countercultural holy people, filled with holiness and filled with love. Not total sinlessness, but obedience marks a joyful, joy-filled church. So then Peter says, well, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Oh yes, God, he's your father, no doubt about it. Oh yes, you can even call him Abba. You can call him dad or daddy. It's all good. And remember, father is not just a description of God. Father is a name of God which allows us to know we belong to him. Yet, this amazing relationship does not bring a free pass. For we as Christians will face this father at the end of time. See, father is an intimate term. It is a loving term, but it also demands respect and submission. See, belonging is amazing. God's work in our life is amazing. When you have a clear picture of God's love for you and it actually forms your identity, it is life-changing. But Peter says, now I've talked to you about the love of God, let me remind all of you, at the end of time, every single Christian will be judged by the living God alone. God will judge each person's, each believer's work according to the whole scope and character of the life they choose to live. And he will evaluate if it was evidenced by faith or fear or self-interest or a mix of the three. This is not about heaven and hell. This is not the great white throne judgment. This is about worship and stewardship. And let me, let me just say this this morning. Let the scriptures just speak clearly this day to you, C4, to us. God, our Father, will judge you impartially, indiscriminately, penetratingly, absolutely, honestly. There will be no way to buy off God at the end of time, nor will you be able to argue your way out, and there will be no favoritism. No amount of title or degree will last on Judgment Day. Every Christian, Peter says, who's experienced the love of God and will know the love of God eternally still will face him. Here's how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5. It's one of the promises, actually, about what God's uniquely doing in our church. Paul says, we are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with Jesus. By the way, is that marking you yet? Would you, is your love for Jesus so unbelievably deep that though you love your kids or your wife or your you want him more. He says, we make it our goal to please him. Whether we're at home in the body or we're away from it. Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so each of us may receive what is due for us or the things done well in our body, whether good or bad. Let me go back to Peter. Let me read the verse in a different translation. If you invoke God as Father, the one who impartially judges a person's every worth, you conduct yourself in fear during your time of exile. See, here's what Peter says. Don't get distracted and start texting and crash. Do not believe that this world is your home. You are a sojourner, an exile. You are a temporary foreign resident of another land. 
And as we journey through this life and even enjoy this country, we are called to be marked by the fear of God. Not dread, not anxiety, but a reverent awe of God that forms our character. One person wrote, the fear recommended here is a holy self-suspicion. A fear of offending God which may not only consist with an assured hope of salvation and with faith and love and spiritual joy. Actually, everyone ready? Fear of God and salvation and faith and love and joy are inseparable companions. The fear is not cowardice. The fear will never humiliate or debase you, but it elevates the mind for it drowns out all lower fears and begets true fortitude and courage to encounter all danger for the sake of a good conscience and obeying of God. Peter says that we will all be judged, our actions will be judged, our motives will be judged, and it will, nothing will escape. And then Peter says, if you're getting defensive right now, if you're crossing your arms, if you're in your head going, I don't want to hear this, he says, oh, hold on, wait, wait, everyone wait. I need to remind you again of his love. I need to remind you of the cost. He says, you all know this, right? For you know, if you're a Christian today, you know this, you know that you know this, that it was not with perishable things like silver or gold, please, that you were redeemed from an empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, your parents, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He says, God gave everything for us to be redeemed. Christian, are you still in awe? Do you fully understand the ultimate cost that it cost God to do this for us? He says, look, Jesus was sent to redeem you. We learned about this word last year. Redeem, ransom, buying back a slave. A slave can never earn their freedom. It takes someone to walk into the slave market and buy them back. See, you can earn for, you can yearn for freedom as a slave, but you cannot earn it. And God, through Jesus, comes and buys us out of the slavery of sin, the slavery of death, the slavery to Satan, and the slavery to this world. And Peter says, do not forget you were in a slave market and you were owned by terrible things that hated you. And Jesus, and you didn't even know him, walked in and he bought you out. Are you in awe? And he says, by the way, very un-Canadian, look what a life is without Jesus. Peter explicitly says in the middle of the Roman Empire, and he'd say it in the GTA today, a life without Jesus, whether you believe it or not, is empty. That is the honest description of humanity without Jesus Christ. The plight of humanity is purposelessness, aimlessness, uh, worthless, empty, futile, no value. No matter how religious or unreligious you are, indulgent or strict you are, all of it is empty because at the end of the day, you have not met your creator through Jesus. But Peter says you. You as a Christian community, we, we've been moved from darkness to light, from guilty to not guilty, from convict to friend, from permanent bankruptcy to freedom, from slavery to liberty. And then Peter says, oh, I'm not done. I've got to sort of keep preaching. He comes back to the cost again, and he shows us the cost even more. He switches images from the business world of redemption to the thousands of years of Jewish ritual and rite by mentioning Jesus as the Lamb of God. Now, if you've done church for a while, you may know this. The Lamb of God is one of the strongest Old Testament themes that finds its culmination in Christ. 
Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac, remember? He's raising the knife to obey God, though he does not understand. And God intervenes and provides a ram, a substitute, so it does not need to take place. Later, the people of God are in literal slavery in Egypt for over 400 years. God says, Moses and Aaron. And he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, multiple plagues come. And at the end, God says, since he will not obey and he's hardening his heart, I will send the spirit of God or an angel across Egypt and I will take the life of every firstborn. He says, but to my people, tell them this. Take a perfect lamb and kill it and smear the blood of that little lamb over the doorpost. And as my spirit passes over you, Passover, it will see the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and you will not get what you deserve. I will pass over and something will substitute in for you so you are free. Later, when the temple was built, in the morning and evening, there was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. And there was a guilt or sin offering done twice a day, and they would sacrifice a perfect little lamb. John the Baptist comes on the scene and looks at his cousin when he is 30, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away what? The sin of the world. So Peter comes along now and says, I want to remind you of the cost and the glorious inheritance you have as Christians of thousands of preparatory years, which you now actually get to live in. Jesus Christ is our replacement, our Passover lamb. He is our guilt offering and our sin offering once and for all. Truly, he says, my best friend is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Are you in awe? The book of Hebrews says, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And Peter comes along and says, I don't want you to be distracted by even the good things that God has given you. Look, notice, and stand in awe of the cost and the sacrifice and the love and the awe of it all. Let me inspire you. Let me keep going. He says, you know what? No, I'm not done. Let me pull back the eternal veil. Let me take you to a time where there was no time. Let me take you to the place called eternity past, where God within himself decided to do this for us. He said, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for us, for your sake. Just like you've been chosen, elected, and foreknown, so it says in the scriptures, Jesus was. This was not God the Father saying to the Son, well, you better go save those people. Get on with it. No. This was in the time before there was time. God within himself decided that Jesus would come and do all of this for us. The Trinity decided to make us his children. And remember again the original audience. The original audience are either actual literal, literal slaves themselves or people that have lost their jobs or are being attacked because they've become Christians or Jews have decided that Jesus is the Messiah. All of them either are literal nothings in their society or are now being pushed to the side of society and God through his scriptures come along and just says the world may call you nothing and the world may hurt you and the world may push you to the edges but before the beginning of time I decided that you would be the apple of my eye and you would never be pushed ultimately to the side for I'm going to make you the center of creation when my son returns. He says, now look, through Jesus, you believe in God. 
who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. By the way, notice this. You only find God through Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12, for there is no other name given under heaven to which people can be saved, yet the name of Jesus. We believe in Jesus, so we have access to God. And he says our faith and our trust and our hope must be in God. Because of what Jesus has done, we have confidence that actually what God promises, he does. When God raised Jesus back from the dead, we knew that God was in the resurrection business. Amen? This is his deal for us. This is his deal for the world. It was the beginning of a new creation. And he says, look, I'm just telling you, even if you suffer in this life, even if you're persecuted in this life, even if you struggle with disease in this life, even if you're not fully healed in this life, here is my eternal promise. I swear by myself, God says, that through Jesus, my son, because he has risen, I will make all things right, and I will make you fully right too. That's living hope you cannot buy, earn, or even expect. So since all this has been done, since we know this is our faith, and since we have an extremely profound understanding of the love of God, and now a call to fear God, mixing together, here's what Peter says. What does it look like to be self-controlled between yesterday and tomorrow? How do I live today? What does holiness look like? How does the fear of God work itself out? How does the love of God express itself? And he says, well, this is where it begins. And by the way, 1 Peter is a whole conversation about holiness from this point forward. He says, now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for your brothers and sisters, the church, love one another deeply from the heart. Now you've met the living God The outworking of meeting the living God is you will love other Christians. You must love all people, but you must deeply love Christians. Now, it's interesting. He uses two words for love. The first one is Philadelphia, affection. But the second one is agape. It's God's love, sincere love, deep love. And so we come along and we say, okay, so you're calling me to love Christians. And all of us who've grown up in church are going, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Help us all. And then... We'd say to Peter, well, what does that look like? And I'm sure he'd smile and say, well, you hear it at every wedding. <laughs> Just go read Paul for a moment. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. What does sincere love look like? Agape is patient. Agape is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. Agape is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Agape, that deep, sincere love, does not delight in evil. It rejoices with the truth. It protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres always. Now, let's just take a moment. By the way, I hope you're not getting distracted and texting while I'm preaching. Ready? Let's just walk this through, okay? So Peter says, you know the love of God. You now know you're going to give an account in a way you probably maybe didn't know before. And by the way, we're supposed to be living this holy countercultural movement no matter where we find ourselves as Christians. And it is marked by holy love. So what does it look like? Patience. You as a Christian are long-suffering. We choose to be, ready, uncomplaining. Ooh, church. Uncomplaining and enduring kind. You are a person marked by mercy. You do not give other people what they deserve. Kindness is hesed, mercy. Envy. You're a person, if you're envious, who promotes strife and rivalry. You love fighting, and you love fighting for the favor of others. That's not among us. 
Boasting, braggart, windbag, self-centered, self-catering, you call attention to yourself. And whether people know you're doing it or not, you know. Proud. Vanity. I'm better than you, don't you know that? I'm better than you because of my looks, or my clothing, or my education, or my creed, or my skin color. Don't you know I have more? And you fill in the blank of all the reasons why you are better than someone else, and that is how you approach them. Proud. Rude is an interesting word in Greek, by the way. We miss it. It's not just sort of being lippy. It's deeper than that. It's shamefully disgracing and humiliating people. You love to guilt people, and you love to shame people. Rude in Greek means you are in defiance of moral standards. Your life results regularly or in points in disgrace or embarrassment to your family, to your teachers, to your pastors or elders, to your friends, your church or your elders. See, here's what it's saying. If you continually writhe against the moral standards of God, you do not submit you are rude. It says that if you're involved in self-seeking... You actually believe in your heart that you finding yourself is the highest good. Not self-seeking is when you start singing the song, it's not about me. Love is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Anyone uncomfortable yet? You're all lying, lying. No record of wrongs. It's very interesting when you think about this. You do not keep a living account of what people have done to you or others. And not only that, you may not forget, but though you cannot forget, you choose not to use it against them. Wow. Agape is keeping no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. And by the way, this is the holiness that Peter is speaking about. You run to the gospel. You love God's truth. And you love God. You love godliness. And you do not give in. You do not accommodate. You do not love evil. You don't joke about evil things. You don't find joy in mass violence or sexual misconduct or rebellion or hate or racism. You don't find joy in addiction. You don't lead people to things that are evil. Your life does not, uh, does not show everyone that you're against those that God has placed over you to lead you. You love truth. When you love truth, you love truth online. And when you love truth, you love truth on TV. And when you love truth, you love truth at the dinner table, even after Sunday morning. And you love truth in every conversation you have. And you do not get excited, and you do not promote, and you do not sit with, and you do not swim in darkness. Your love for Jesus and your understanding of his great love for you and the fear of God has moved you to a place that you would never dare want to offend the great God of love who has called you and you'd never want to touch anyone made in his image, especially the bride of Christ, which Jesus died for and made. Peter comes and says, verse 23, for you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of the imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And he says, this reality check, all people are like grass. All their glory is like the flower of the fields. Grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this was the word preached to you. 
God's word and God's work is living and life-giving and creative and permanent and enduring and it remains forever. What God is saying is started in us is secure. What God has started in you must produce a life that is marked by heaven, by Jesus, by his spirit, by the Father's kingdom, the imperishable, not the passing, not the perishable things. Let me put it this way. Living hope leads to holiness. The fear of God grounds us to keep walking in God's love, which keeps us loving each other. Let me break it down this way. If you, as a Christian, do not have an obsessive understanding of God the Father's work and God the Son's work and God the Holy Spirit's work in your life, if God's work is not the grounding and the foundation and the, the whole center of your personality and your identity, you will not love other Christians. And not only, so you've got to start with God's work, and not only that, if you do not believe that you will face the living God at the end of time, even as a Christian and give an account, you will not love other Christians. See, Peter begins to unpack this, and he says, if you want to see the outworking of living hope, the future breaking into the now, you must ask God to create such an identity in you that is rooted in God the Father's call, the Son's work, and the Spirit's ongoing work, and you must live in holy fear. For then those things mixing together will produce a community that loves each other. We try loving each other and we fail all the time because we miss those two things. Let me speak to some different audiences this morning. To you who are here this morning, to you in North Durham this morning, to you online. Some of you join us regularly or one-offs and and you're a seeker. You are not a Christian. You are most welcome here. You may have the title Christian or you may be of another faith or no faith. Would you have the courage this morning to let God and his word move you to an honest evaluation of your life? The Bible says that without Jesus, you are blind. You are ignorant spiritually, though you may be very educated, and actually your life is empty. And you say, well, no, it's not. Well, hold on. If your life has no eternal value, then your life just consists of sex, money, power, what you can buy, what you can have, and even who you're just in relationship with. But that's all bound up in the here and now. And maybe you're saying, well, no, no, I'm very religious or very spiritual. Well, it's interesting. When you have that conversation, you're still trying to make today better, or much of the time you're trying to prove yourself to God. And in all cases, in anywhere where you sit, you're still the center and God isn't. God today says something to you in kindness. He reminds you that you're going to die. We are all like grass that's here in the morning and gone in the evening. Grass and flowers, life is short. It can be beautiful. It can be passionate, but it does decay. And here's what God would say to you today in great loving kindness. Be saved while you can. Look at what God has done for you in the human family. God didn't just wind up a clock and walk away. God came in and calls you and Jesus redeems and covers and stands in your place and and forgives. Death does not need to be the end for you. Eternal life can be yours in the now and not yet. And so here's the plea from heaven today. Turn to God through Jesus. Salvation, forgiveness, hope, living hope, purpose, it's all received. It's never achieved. It's all received. It's never achieved. Let me say this to you directly, whoever you might be. Today, let God be your father. And some of us, I just feel it, some of us going, never, no, don't say never to him. He is a good, loving father. Would anyone else attest in this this church this morning that God is a good dad? Honestly, he is good. 
It's almost like I just heard someone say, never, don't do it. He's a good father. Let Jesus be your savior. Save you from yourself and all the stuff that owns you. And let the spirit of God become your guide and your comfort. We, hundreds of us in this room, hundreds of you in the north, we would give living stories to you how God is a good, trustworthy God. As Peter preached, there is no other name given to all of humanity except Jesus Christ. And if that's you and you're resisting, but now you're about to give in, just pray this prayer. Church, pray at this moment, then I'll speak to you. Just say, say these words. If you're that seeker who wants to cross the line, Jesus Christ, if what that guy with that bow tie is saying is true, if it's really true, then I say yes. Be my father now. Jesus, be my savior now. I, I turn from a life of sin. I believe, I don't understand why I'm saying this. I believe you died and rose again and you stood in my place. Be my lamb Make me clean. Redeem me out of slavery. And Holy Spirit, I don't even know who you are, but come, I receive you. Be my guide. I say yes to you. Make me clean and right before you. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen. If you prayed that, by the way, if you came with someone, you tell them. There'll be prayer people here, prayer people in the north, or contact us online. Okay, church, a few things as we're getting going in First Peter, but they're critical before we respond in song. So just stay with me, please. Is anyone starting, please, 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 is anyone starting to believe this life is more valuable than it is? Like, there are, we are so blessed. And much of what we have is not evil, it's good. But I just don't think that our empty life is valuable. Don't get drunk. Don't text and drive spiritually. Don't get intoxicated. Don't get high with the smoke that's going to be blown away forever. Has sin or worldliness or here's something even deeper. Have even the good things that God has given you. Maybe it's your children or your job or travel or love for food. Have even these things become so precious and costly and dear to you that you have begun to get distracted and you're forgetting the great work of God that he's done on your account. Do not turn... Do not call God Father on Sunday and live like a stranger the rest of the week. And if some of you are going, no, no, I love God. And I'm like, yes. So here's what I would say to us who don't just do the Sunday thing. Don't let any corner of your life be hidden or resisted. Because we need to understand something. We're going to give an account. So many of us wonder why we struggle with sin. Or we can't love other Christians. Or we can't obey. It's because we continually forget the love of God for us. And we don't really, really, really think we're giving, going to give an account at the end of time. You cannot treat your holiness like a joke. You cannot play with fire and not get burned. Let me put it this way. And this is not judgment. This is just the fear of God has not gripped the heart of our church yet. The idea that you will face your loving father and yet you will give an account of how you thought about people and how you talked about people and how you gave or did not give. Like we are going to give an account and the fear of God is one of the great leveraging agents to holiness in a local church. Let me just read this again. Here's what Paul said. So we make it our goal to please Jesus whether we're home in the body or away from it for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so each one of us may receive what is due us for things done in the body, whether good or bad. Can I just ask, you, I'm going to do something strange. I'm just going to ask for silence. 
And I want you to think about this for a moment. Do you really believe as a Christian that you're going to give an account? And do you ever think and do you ever fear our God? Or has he just become your best friend and you've forgotten who he truly is? Take a moment. Sit with it. Don't think about anything else. Just sit and say, ask yourself the question, do I believe I'm going to give an account? Peter says, the Holy Scriptures say this to us as a church this morning. Oh, the love of God. How wide and high and deep it is for us. Do you have that in your minds yet this morning, church? Yes or no? Yes or no? Good. The fear of God. The love and fear of God mixed together to produce holiness. So here's where I end. Don't look down. And don't look around. Look forward and look up. Why? Because in the end, our hope, Peter says, is found partially here, but it's coming. And by the way, even when we give an account, isn't God's mercy going to be amazing on that day? Yes? Even that? And what a reunion we are going to have. I was thinking about this today as I was going to get ready to preach. Not only are we going to get to see Jesus, I cannot wait to see him. I love him so much. Not only are we going to see him, can you imagine the reunion we are going to have in heaven? Like really, no, just that is such a profound thing. We cannot miss in all this. All the people that we've read about, all the people we sang it, every generation of Christian is going to be there. Every generation of God followers is going to be there. And we're going to see also all the friends and family and relatives. And the world can't offer this. You know, I just... I'm struck every time I'm at a funeral or I do a funeral and people wail at a graveside and their grief is so different than ours because though we wail too, we still get to walk away and say, that's not the end. That's not the end. And so let me just pray for us and let's stand as we do this together. You can stand in the north as you get ready to respond. And let me pray this over our church. Oh God of great mercy and hesed love, We continually pray in this church for nothing less than the great work of God in the now that comes from the not yet. And here's our prayer. Number one, I pray for us, the love of God, to grip this church in a way I cannot preach. Just God, the calling of the Father, the work of Jesus, the the salvation of Christ the redemption of Christ, the power of the Spirit, help it mark this church in a way I don't even understand. Second of all, I pray, God, for the fear of God to sweep this church, the fear of God to sweep in our homes, in our connect groups, in our conversations. We invite, could you do this, church? Open your hands. Invite the fear of God. We're not, we want the fear of God. And lastly, we pray, oh God, continue to remind us, to speak to us, to tell us that there's a living hope that is coming stronger, more beautiful than what has been done. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And everyone said loudly together, 
Amen. Let's sing to that God today. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.